Welcome to episode three of Myth vs. Craft, where I set out to interview interesting people who excel at what they do. My guest today is the Americana singer, songwriter, producer, and guitarist, Chris Beal. The son of a motorcycle racer, he started his music career in West Texas, moved to Nashville for a while, and eventually settled down in Austin, Texas. He's released two solo albums and placed a number of tracks in the Roots radio charts. When he's not writing music or performing, he accompanies and produces other artists. As if that weren't enough, he's also part of the supergroup, the South Austin Moonlighters. You can learn more about Chris, check out his calendar, and find his music at chrisbealmusic.com, where Beal is spelled B-E-A-L-L. Here we go. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. As, as I've been doing lately, I, I'd like to start in the very beginning. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I read that you grew up in West Texas. Right. I'd like to learn more about the music scene in your hometown oh, and, and okay. your exposure to music and what that was like growing up. That's a simple one. I thought you were going to go all the way back to like Adam and Eve and we're going to try to figure out why we love music to begin with. <laughs> now, uh, West Texas, back then... I have to use my old man voice for this, you know. Back when I was a kid, uh, no, in the uh, before the internet, we were 150 miles away from anywhere. So Abilene was the only like big city, if you will, out in West Texas within a 150 mile radius. So you had Lubbock, Midland, uh, uh, Fort Worth, Dallas, and, and really Austin is about the biggest thing to the south, and so that's much more than 150 miles, but. Anyway, with no internet, no access to, you know, other things going on in the world, at 150 miles away from any other, you know, major or, or larger city, you kind of had your own thing happening right out there. And sometimes that can be a good thing. Sometimes that can be a bad thing. And when I grew up in Abilene, I always used to, uh, you know, dream of getting out of Abilene because it was never cool to be like from somewhere like that. When I was coming up in the music business, you know, you, you had to be from, you know, Nashville or Austin or LA or New York, you know, somewhere, Chicago, I mean, anywhere other than some place that nobody's even heard of. So we always used to want to get out of there. And, um, and so that's kind of what we set our sights on. And I think part of that was good because it got us listening to people outside of our area and got us comparing, uh, what we were doing to things that were going on in some of the some of the bigger markets in some of the other areas. So uh, one of those guys would be David Grissom. You know, we, in the nineties, there weren't very many people that knew who David Grissom was, our late eighties, early nineties. And, uh, but the guitar players did, you know, the guys out in West Texas, we knew who David was. And we were listening to some of that Joe Ely stuff. And we were, we were learning those licks before David had hot licks videos, you know, and showing everybody. Right. So we were trying to, to do some of that stuff that, that some of the big guys were doing out in our little West Texas town. And what was really cool about the other side of being from a little kind of a small area that's isolated is, you know, you, you get your own little community of that happening and if there's any support by the people at all, it just becomes amazing. Like the music scene when I was coming up in Abilene was really, really cool. Uh, I look back on it now and realize that. Now, I didn't necessarily know that at the time. I just thought that's the way that things were. But uh, it was really it was really cool. I mean, we always had places to play and we always had people at the shows. And so that allowed us to play, you know, at least three or four times a week and then travel um, 
and uh, and anyway, so I, I think that uh, it was kind of unique because it did it did offer us. Uh, we we did want to to get out of Abilene and learn things outside of that area, but we also were stuck there, and so we were kind of we had to have our own scene. So those two things combined, I think, made for a pretty unique experience. And when you say we, are you referring collectively to the musicians? Yeah, in just Abilene, to the, or the guys to, uh, that grew your up. band. Yeah, the guys that grew up there and played there. Okay, I mean there there are still some guys back out in that area, and then some of them have you know moved on and stuff, but. I also read that you started playing guitar uh, in your teens. Yep. Do you remember what prompted you to yeah, start? I, uh, I've, I've said this uh, before, but I, uh, I, I, when I look back on it, I can make more sense of it, of course, than I could as it was going on. But as a little kid, I remember uh, picking out four-part harmonies and, and being able to, to sing relatively the part. I mean, you know, I'm a little kid. I don't have mm-hmm. like a deep bass voice or anything, but I could, I could recognize that there was a part down there and I could sing the octave up or whatever. I could sing all these different parts just because I could hear them. I could recognize them. And this is probably six or seven years old, you know, eight years old. So I knew that I, you know, I love music. There was something about music that I either understood or identified with or loved, or there was something there. And so as I got a little older, I recognized that I wanted to play something, but I really didn't know what to play. And so the first thing that I, I came across was uh, I had a good friend that was a drummer. And so I thought, well, I just played the drums. He can teach me how to play. And so I started learning how to play the drums. Now, you wouldn't know it now because I can't play very well. But back then, that's what I started playing. But I realized that I couldn't write any songs or, or, or I, I was just, you know, I didn't have like melody and, you know, arranging and all that kind of stuff when I was playing a drum kit. So I thought, okay, well, I'll try the keyboard. So during that time, I broke my my ankle. I was racing bicycles. I was a bicycle racer. And uh, so I was an expert BMX guy, you know. But anyway, I, I was at the Grand Nationals in Oklahoma, and, and I was going really, really well. And I was leading my heat race, and uh, and I fell off and broke my ankle. So that was pretty much all the, the story. But I was bedridden for a while. It was a pretty bad break, and they had to do surgery, and they pinned my ankle uh, fortunately enough, everything, you know, worked out okay, but I couldn't really get around and risk falling on my, on my leg. And so I kind of sat in bed I thought, well, I'm stuck here and my dad had a guitar. So I just sat and started learning how to play the guitar because I was stuck in bed. And, uh, have you been self-taught all along? Yeah, I, I, for the most part, I mean, I, I started, I started, with my ear and then I would read books and learn things and then, you know, compare that to what I could hear and then kind of bouncing back and forth. But, uh, I did take some, uh, I've had music theory and four part composition, uh, some, some training and some theory and stuff like that. But it was after I had learned how to play. Got it. Can you pinpoint at what age or moment you decided that you wanted to take a shot at making a career in music? Yeah, I uh, I think I had dreams of doing that as a younger person, um, but it wasn't until my twenties, till I was twenty, I guess I was twenty or yeah, I was twenty years old. I was in college, and the first year of college, you know that that went okay. It was toward the end of that first year. It was it was a little more difficult, but uh, the second year, 
man, I just, it just really hit home. Like I was paying for my own college, so I couldn't really bail out. I wanted to make sure that I, you know, that I at least finished what I'd paid for and got my money's worth. So, so I stuck it out and, and I did that for a while, but I was really realizing that at about 20 years old, that this was, this is not what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. What was your major? Um, I was trying to remember if I even had one. I think I, I hadn't even declared a major yet, but I was leaning toward mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I, I, I was taking some calculus and some things mm -hmm. like that. And boy, that, that took the wind out of my sails <laughs> real quick. Did you, when you started thinking of, of giving it a shot at giving music a shot, mm -hmm. did you have a, a clear sense of the type of career that you wanted, what your objectives were? Absolutely not. Back then I used to want a swimming pool full of whiskey. <laughs> So if I could just get that, I think that I'd be all right. But I realized that's not really what I needed or wanted the whole time. Right. So yeah, I don't. I don't know that there's a clear. They don't teach that stuff. You know, they don't. They don't teach how to uh, how to do those things. And and I'm not sure that a musician would be the type that could even learn that or take it in. It's a, it's an interesting road because you you know you you start trying to teach a musician the world of business. And it's very hard. It's very difficult. You moved to Nashville. Mm -hmm. At what age was that? I was 25, I think. 25. So this was after college, after mm -hmm. you had decided you, uh, you wanted to uh, change in direction. Fred, that the experience didn't go the way you expected it to go. Right, right. Um, and you became disenchanted in music. Yeah. Uh, what happened? Well, once again, you know, looking back through the lens of history, I think the, the main thing was just I, I had a lot of expectations of music. And what it what it meant to me and what I needed from it, and Nashville was the exact opposite of that. So all the fulfilling things, all of what you you know envision that you would get from music, Nashville's more the type of place that takes that away. And I I have to be careful how I say this because I, I don't really want to come across as the guy that hates Nashville because I don't. I I love it. it's a beautiful place. Uh, there lot, I have a lot of great friends up there. But I will say that it is very, very difficult for an artist to survive in a community that's built around business. And the music business is no different. And Nashville is a huge music business place. And so it's all about the business and it's all about, um, you know, getting getting that kind of stuff done. Now, of course, somebody that's listening, you know, online that's up there that's surrounded by it might not see it the same way that I do because it's... It, you know, when you're looking through the lens of history and you're looking through the lens at a distance, it's going to appear different. But I think the thing that hurt me the most was what I wanted to do with music is uh, be able to express myself. And whether I knew that then or not, that's always been the case. And we, all, we musicians or artists generally have their their worth, their their value, everything on the line when it comes to art because it, it's an extension of the person. And so for somebody to kind of slap you on the wrist when you when you put something like that out there, it's really difficult to take. So that's kind of what happened to me. I, I, uh, I was, me and three other guys were signed to a development deal and, uh, and we got dropped without ever, so our check stopped coming, you know, in the mail. And so we uh, were kind of asking questions. You're like, what's, you know, what's going on? They've been late before, you know, things happen, but uh, come to find out that, well, we've, we've changed. We've decided that we're going to go a little different route. And, and so anyway, there we were with no money 
you know, it had been a while since we gotten uh, an advance and we had no money and we didn't even know what we were going to do because we've been working so hard toward this one objective, this one goal. So now with no money and no backing and nothing, uh, we were just kind of left to survive up there. And that's, that's something that's hard to recover from, especially when there's water under the bridge. If you're, if you're 20 or 21 years old, that's one thing you might be able to handle that. But at that point, I think I was 26 or 27 and, you know, I'd been struggling in the business for about seven years, you know, working hard and making sacrifices and, and commitments. And then to have, to get that, it's like, Oh, good Lord, I can't do this anymore. You know? And so that's kind of why I, uh, I, I backed off of pursuing the artistic side of music and really just began to lean on my strengths as, um, you know, as an engineer, as a producer, or anything else I could do to make a living in the music business. So that's how I ended up there. And you moved back to Austin? Yeah. Um, my, my, I was married at that time, and so my wife had family down in Austin, and I had always talked about moving to Austin to begin with. So we thought, well, where are we going to go? Let's just go to Austin. So that's why we came down here. How much time passed and what happened to kind of turn you around again and, and for you to decide that you wanted to revisit music? Well, there's something that never, well, hopefully, if it's right, it never goes away. Uh, there were, there was a number of, of years that, uh, I really wrestled with the, the drive to, to, uh, to make music, you know, to be creative. There's, there's something that you you just I guess I began to recognize something was missing like in my life like you, I, I started going after all these other goals and accomplishing things is great and it makes you feel really good about about you know who you are and what you do but there's there's something that just doesn't quite add up when the things that I speak for me when the things that I was chasing after just didn't really add up in the end like They'd, I'd be satisfied for a little while, but then, no, not really. And there was always something missing. And so during that time, I'm, I'm a pretty spiritual guy. And during that time, I, uh, I'd been searching a lot, uh, a lot of different spiritual avenues. And, and I came across uh, Christianity. And I, uh, I'd been learning a lot and began to believe that, that the, the story was true and that God is redemptive and I was kind of turning to God at that time. And I remember praying about this, that what was going on in me. And I remember just, you know, praying, look, take it away. I'll be fine. You know, and I don't really need to do this. I, I can go do something else. I mean, I like cars. I like a lot of stuff. I'll just build hot rods. I'll do whatever, you know, I don't really want to wrestle with this the rest of my life. And so I, I did for a little while. And finally I just kind of realized there, uh, toward that, the end of that period that there was, a, it's not going away. And there, this is something that I should be doing because I am not being honest with myself and I'm not being honest with the people around me. And, uh, I think it's just time to go ahead and, and get back into what I left behind. But I think the, the unique difference this time around is that I have a different reason for doing what I do. So in spite of myself, about half the time, I, I keep moving and I keep going on. What exactly did you do? What did it entail, <clears throat> pardon me, entail for you to, when you decided to get back into music? Being where I'm at now, 
even now it's it's still difficult to imagine what all I have to do to accomplish what needs to be done. So if I sat down and you know, lined it out on a piece of paper or whatever, it would probably just depress me. I'd just go, I, there's no way I could ever do this. I'm just going home. So there's a certain amount of that. Like the, I began to realize that the only thing that is required of any of us is the next thing. So I can't, you know, I can look down the road and I can plan. And I think that's a smart thing to do. But when it comes to today, I can do what needs to be done today and and keep going on. And so what I began to do in hindsight, when you look back, is I just began to take steps. So the first thing that I knew to do was to uh, do what, what I have called before in an interview, put my money where my mouth is. So start making decisions that line up with what this, what this inner truth about me is. If I'm an artist, then I need to be making decisions in my life that represent what God built in me to be. And so that can mean, you know, maybe I don't need cable TV. You know, maybe that I shouldn't be sitting in front of the TV to begin with. Maybe that time could be better spent, you know, either writing or, you know, practicing acoustic guitar, which that's what I did. And, uh, and so there's little decisions like that along the way, all those little decisions begin to stack up and they begin to stack up and stack up and stack up. And so by the time we got to, you know, 2000 and, Nine, two thousand and ten. I had a, a, a bunch of stuff recorded. I had, uh, and I released that CD in two thousand ten. And uh, so, yeah, just it just, but it didn't happen like you know. I knew what I wanted to do three, four years before that, but I just couldn't get there, you know, until that time. And I, and the funny thing is, no one ever will. Like we, there are a lot of people that feel the same way that I do. It's not that I feel like I'm anything special when it comes to that. I think that it's just a matter of a lot of folks that 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 may may feel that tug. They either can't or or don't or aren't willing to give what it takes to to get that. You know, those little daily decisions about what they should be doing and and that kind of thing is just hard. It's hard to hard to change a life that you've gotten used to living. So I asked you earlier if uh, if the first in your first go around if you had a sense of of the type of career or the objectives in in music, and and you said at the time no. Um, when you decided to get back into it, did you have a better sense, or do you have a better sense now? Yeah, I think so. I I'm I'm still a little aloof when it comes to that, um, but I I do I do have a better sense of uh, my decision making and why. So I I look at. Uh, I'll, I'll tackle the question this way. I, I look at value rather than money to the best of my ability. I mean, I'm, I'm ruled by money just like the rest of us, but to some degree, I try to, I try to disconnect it from value the best that I can and see what the intrinsic value of something is. So an example would be, Chris, can you come play this thing on Wednesday night? Um, it's for free. And it's in San Antonio, and uh, but there's going to be 200 people, you know, there, and they're all fans of, you know, people like Walt Wilkins and things like that. Well, obviously, hearing me talk about it, there's value in that type of a show. If I if I can if I if I believe in my songs and my ability enough to get in front of 
people who are fans of music that that I potentially think would be fans of mine, then it's worthwhile for me to invest my time, uh, my money, which would cost to do that, um, and sacrifice some type of income that I would have been able to get otherwise had I not gone to San Antonio. So there's a couple or three things immediately that I would have to sacrifice or give up to obtain whatever the value was in that show. But I began to see, you know, that there are, there's, there's value like that in all kinds of different things. And I don't even mean just shows, but relationships, um, but like one of the hardest things I think for an artist like myself, I can really only speak for me, but I think a lot of us go through this is, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties. I'm, there's water under the bridge. It's a lot harder for me to sit and write a song because I don't feel like I'm being productive. I feel like I'm not spending my time the way that it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be, you know, conquering, earning, you know, doing these other things. But the truth is that song is extremely valuable in a number of ways. I mean, I could even, I could touch on what, you know, I could describe what the value could be, but I, that would just limit what it is. But it, it, it may be because, you know, there's a guy in prison that's doing the best he can to turn his life around. And that one song might make the difference in that guy's life to you know, to change the course of history. I don't know. You know, you never know what these songs will do. But all I know is it's my responsibility when the time comes to sit down and do those types of things. But it's hard sometimes to recognize what what the value of something is and what I should and should, shouldn't give up to get, you know, that kind of thing. And maybe I kind of got off on a tangent there, but... Uh, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, from from where um, do you draw inspiration for for your songwriting? Is it typically personal experience, or from where? Uh, there are a lot of writers that that have a number of different ways of being inspired, and I, I was just thinking some of uh, some of my friends, like I, I really admire people that can write through characters. I mean, I think that that's great. I'm, you, you know, they can paint. They can paint all this, these these different images um, with these with these characters, and they're t and they're telling you a story that might or might not be something extremely personal to them. I, I I like to think that that it is, but I think that it goes beyond that. I think it's personal to humanity when you tell a story that way. But mine, up to this point, honestly, has been much more personal. Uh, I think where I'm at right now, I try not to think too much about it, but I think looking, looking at it, I am to the point where I'm, I'm doing a little bit of both. So in my writing, I end up, uh, with these, with these characters that are, that I've come across, you know, I know a little bit about, they, they somehow had an impact on me. And then I begin to tell the story of that, like a firsthand witness kind of thing. And, and so the story is both personal and yet it's also a characterization or, or about a character, not necessarily about me, but it's kind of translated through my eyes. And so I, I think that, that it's both personal and that it's, uh, broader and, and, and more about humanity as well. So I'm trying to do, I can see how that fits and I can see, 
that that's probably where the next album is going because there are a number of songs that are kind of that way. Do you have a set process to write songs? Does it always happen the same way or does it happen in a number of different ways? A number of different ways. Sometimes melodically. Sometimes I'll uh, I'll just hear something and uh, and, and it'll strike me and it'll be just some kind of melody going around in my head. And usually there's a, there's a phrase attached to it, like a phonic kind of the, the uh, syllables and, and little nuances to the way the melody is, is, uh, is being conveyed that I hear somehow. So there's that. And so that doesn't have anything to do with me picking up an instrument necessarily or anything. I can just be walking along um, the other part of it is a little more literal and lyrical and, uh, it's, it's generally the, the, the story stuff, like, like I can, uh, I can be in a room and hear a conversation with a friend or whatever, and they'll be, you'll be talking, 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 and there'll be 30 seconds of something that was just like, boom, wow, what was that? And that's the part that, that I've. I can kind of take away and really wrestle with and, and maybe even dissect and, and think about, and that's becomes like the theme for a song. So in some ways I'm like a reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other, another way that, that it happens is through sitting down and playing. And that's been happening a lot more lately than it used to. I used to, I used to only sit down and, and play the guitar when I had to learn something. Um, there's a lot more to that story, but I'll just tell you that it's, there was a, there was a time when in order for me to pick up the guitar, I kind of had to confront disappointment all over again. Every time I picked up the guitar, every time I, I picked up the guitar to sit down and strum a chord, I had to overcome whatever the disappointment was that I guess I'd built up all those years without really knowing it. And get going again, you know? So uh, for a number of years, I didn't practice very much. I was, uh, what I would do is make myself record. So I would put, I would put a a schedule together for, for me and I would sit down and make myself record. And that's how I would spend so much time with an instrument is just sit down and try and get these, these songs to come out and get them right. And so that was really good for me. But, but now I don't necessarily have to do that. I've gotten to the point where you know, I feel pretty good about just just sitting and playing. I I really enjoy again just sitting and hearing the sound of the acoustic guitar and hearing the electric guitar, and that can inspire me. And it has been lately. So there have been a lot of like every time I sit down and play the guitar, there there's there's a melody, there's a way to do something, there's an arrangement, there's a and there's things that are happening all the time. So I'm I'm pretty encouraged by by that part of it too. So usually. I'm making this a long answer, but usually between those three things, I usually end up drawing like if if I could put all of them down on a piece of paper, like if they were these objects I could put down there and I'd draw a circle around them. And then that would be kind of what I could see in my lens of view. Like I wouldn't necessarily try to go too far outside of that. I'd try to say, okay, that, that, that thing that, that Jamie said the other night about this, this concept of, um, you know, the, the way a, a father loves a son, 
what does that look like? And how does this, you know, you know, so I would start extrapolating that, that idea and kind of, and, and I know that it kind of sounds like this and I would play, you know, along or whatever. So as long as I kind of keep that focus, then a song would, would come out of that. And that's kind of the way that I generally do things in any, at any one point, it can be more about the melody. It can be more about the lyric or, or, uh, more about the story. Do the lyrics um, usually come before, after uh, the music, or, or or both? Well, I think I think it's kind of a juggling match. I think that sometimes sometimes the melody comes first, um, sometimes the the lyric comes first, but but usually they're closely associated pretty quick. So they don't they don't go like I don't I don't write poetry and then try to put music to it. Usually there there's a there's music that's coming pretty quickly along with whatever this thing was that I put down or vice versa. There's a melody and there are words that are flowing right behind it, you know. How often do you collaborate with, with uh, other songwriters? Not nearly as often as I should. I have, Do you think there would be there, there is value in doing so? I, absolutely. I, I think that even if there's no songs that come out of it, I think absolutely there there's value in and artists spending time together working through things together, even if it's for a conversation. And uh, and it's time for me to put my money where my mouth is. I've kind of made that commitment for next year. I was talking to a friend of mine last week about it. I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna get into the habit of every month uh, requiring it of myself to have spent some time scheduling it or otherwise sent, uh, sitting down with other writers and uh, and just you know, experimenting, just exchanging ideas and, and working toward something. Cause I think that's a place that I need to grow. And I think, um, it must, if, especially if you don't do it very often, it, it can be difficult mm-hmm. to share and, and, and in a sense become vulnerable enough to share these very personal ideas with someone else and, yeah. and not know how they're going to react to it. And whether you play it too safe or, or you're sharing stuff that they're shooting down or, yeah. um, I, I imagine a lot of it has to do with finding the right partner with whom you feel comfortable doing that. I think you're right. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny to even try and explain it because it's, uh, we, we, as humans, we all have these different dynamics and personalities, you know? So it's, of course, there are going to be some of us that fit real well and can communicate these ideas really well. Um, but sometimes the sometimes the struggle can can give beautiful things as well. So I, I I think I need to let go of that a little bit and kind of get outside of my comfort zone and do a little bit more of that this year. So I'm I'm actually looking forward to it, even though I know it's going to require time and be difficult at times. But how do you split your time between writing, recording, and performing? Well, that's a great question. I uh, the only way that I really know how to do something is all in. And I don't mean that as a, I don't mean that as some, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an all in kind of guy. I just mean that I, I, I'm not a multitasker. I'm not very good at multitasking. And so usually whatever's in front of me is occupying all of my energy and, and effort. And so what I end up doing is I end up putting like so much energy and effort into something that I'll, I'll run too fast and get burnt out. What I have learned about myself is that as long as I'll shift gears and do different things, 
then I never really get burnt out at any one of them. So there are times when I'll, you know, just sit and write, 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 write. And then there are times when I'll do nothing but produce. And then there are times when I'll, you know, I'll be a guitar player for somebody or whatever. So I've, I've kind of figured out uh, a way to stay productive and not have quite as much downtime as I used to have to have and still, you know, do all these different things. So I don't necessarily have a great way of transitioning from one to the other, but the only thing that I've done in the past two years, um, so if you've looked at my recent past at all, you know that I, I, for 2013, I released that brand new world disc. Previous to that, I uh, had just gotten back into being a professional musician. And so I was playing guitar for a good friend of mine, Denny Heron, who's still a great friend and hadn't seen him near as much as I wish I have. But um, between doing that and then I was beginning to produce some projects uh, in 2012, 2013. So that was occupying a little bit of my time. Um, I started learning at that point uh, how to how to look beyond a week. Most most musicians that I know, we look we look from uh, Sunday to Saturday. That's what we do. We check our we check our calendar on Sunday. What's coming up this week? What do I have to get done? And where am I at Saturday night? You know. And what I began to do is I started looking at uh, like like three month and one month. I started getting a lot better at looking at looking down the line at three months. Where am I? What am I doing? And what has what has led up to that point? And then looking at my month and being able to schedule things accordingly. So that I, I intentionally schedule um, different stuff on my calendar to make me shift gears to make and, me stop. And that doing stuff, one just thing. to recount, is of course songwriting, mm-hmm. performing uh-huh. on your own. Mm-hmm. Producing, producing, yep, and uh, and recording, yeah, and and possibly uh, there's there's that other component that I haven't done enough of, which is kind of going out and just being around friends, playing music maybe in another band, or, or or you know going to a show to be inspired or something like that. So I try to so I try to schedule myself those things, and a lot of times I bitch about it too. I don't like shifting gears. I don't like it because I am focused. I want to do this thing, you know? And I look at my calendar and go, crap, I got to go do this stupid blah, 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 blah. Well, there's a reason why I do that to myself, you know? I still haven't learned to really embrace the idea until I'm in it and, you know, and then then it's like, oh yeah, okay, this is great. Sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, how important uh, or, or how much do you enjoy performing? And the reason I ask is that I, I've spoken and, and read about musicians to whom it's a ne- almost a necessary evil, something they have to do, and 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 some for whom it's an integral part of of why they love music. Uh, yeah, that's good. Or does it change? I, it, I, I think it does change. I can I think it depends on what what the kind of music is and where I'm at as a person and all that kind of stuff. I, I can tell you where I've been in the recent past, uh, but. I, th- I think to preface that, I uh, there's a guy named Blake Mills that I've gotten into the past year, and and he was asked that in an interview, and I was watching a video of it, and he was at the point it, it, one when they asked him that, I think he said I don't remember what the context was, but I think he said he hated it. I hate playing <laughs> live, and I, what he was saying after that was that it, it uh, stresses him out. 
Like he's so he he puts so much pressure on himself to do well. I think that that's the reason that he that he that he hates it, but he loves it too. And you can tell when he's on stage. Um, I think there's a little bit of that for me. Um, I am I'm trying once again to embrace the idea of just being where I'm at and enjoying the moment that I have in front of me. I'm trying to get better at that. I can see that that I've worked so hard to be where I'm at that there's there's a lot of expectation tied up in it and there's um, there's a lot of uh, stress sometimes tied up in it because of that and I'm just trying to learn again to just let go of that and just love what it is that I do and be thankful for it and so I usually get there when I'm when I'm performing, I mean, when the gig is actually happening, but before the gig, good Lord, sometimes I'll stress out about all kinds of stuff. And, you know, understandably so. I mean, it, as a solo artist, you know, I've got, I got a bass player, I got a drummer, I usually have an accompanist. So I'm usually a four piece band of some sort, if not a five piece, and we all have to rehearse and everybody's schedules never line up. And you know what I mean? And, and I, and I don't make enough money to just go hire, um, guys who could afford to spend the kind of time that I need for them to, to learn the way that I think we ought to do that. You know, so in my head, I get all stressed out about all kinds of stuff, but once the gig is going, usually I'm having a blast. I'm usually right in the moment, right where I should be. And I don't think about too much stuff. Are you very self-critical after a show? I used to be. I think I still am, but I recognize my voice. I don't. Uh, I don't let it get me out of shape anymore. I, I'm glad you asked that, and I'll go on another long tangent about when I got back into making music. I, I talk like I had some big career, you know, in my 20s. I really didn't have anything. I mean, I, I worked my butt off like a bunch of guys did, but but I never really got anywhere. I met some people. I you know I did some really cool things, but it got me nothing. And there wasn't anybody I could call on the phone to help, you know, when I got back into the music business, there wasn't a, wasn't a so-and-so at MCA that I could call and, Hey, you know, if you got a, this and you got a, that, you could help me out. I'm back in the game. And so when I got back in, I, I, you know, all I had was friends, which is, I think the thing that I needed the most, but I remember this one gig, I'd done some of the things that I told you about. I'd taken some steps where I'd, I'd made myself sit down and do what I profess to love to do and put my money where my mouth is. And I remember working on my seagull guitar and working on fingerstyle. And there's a long story behind all of that. But I, I kind of tried to go back to the beginning. I tried to go back to what I might have missed and why. I wasn't in the music business anymore, you know, or wasn't in making music anymore. And I tried to get down to the love of song and why I should be doing what I'm doing. So anyway, I'm learning this acoustic guitar stuff and I booked myself this gig and I, and I had practiced and I had worked up these songs and everything. And I go do this gig and there, you know, 10 or 15 people there. It, it was, uh, it was pretty disappointing, but not that bad, but I remember doing okay uh, on stage, you know, not quite the, the, the way that I would really like to do it for where I was, I think. But I remember afterwards, within an hour, hour and a half afterwards, feeling absolutely worthless. Like, like there was just this overwhelming sense of being spent and 
and not even, there wasn't even a voice telling me that I sucked, but there was just this overwhelming feel that that was what was, that that was what was going on. But I'm, I gotten to the point where I'm kind of, I recognize that. And I remember talking to Christina about it. I remember sitting on the couch and just going, Is Christina, wow. your wife? Yeah, my wife. I remember uh, talking to her about it and trying to explain to her what was going on. And, uh, and I, so it, through that experience and things like that, I started recognizing, okay, this is a, this is a pattern that, uh, artists deal with and they go through. Now I'm to the point now where it doesn't bother me, you know, very much anymore. If, and when the, the time comes to, t- to, to take a few more steps and really put myself out there again, which there will be those times come up. I mean, uh, for instance, would be, a. Um, you know, this next year I've got dates on the calendar opening for some pretty successful artists, which will put me in front of 2,500 to 3,000 people per show. Well, you know what I mean? That's a different, that's a different thing than I have been doing so far. And so that's going to- How do you feel about it right now? I feel fine. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm totally fine with it right now, but I can, I'm smart enough to know that that's going to bring some things up. You know, I don't know what they are. I don't know if that's going to make me feel worthless. I don't know if it's what it's going to do, but it's going to bring something up and I'm just going to have to recognize it and move on down the road. I think that's what that experience kind of taught me is that, that yes, I am super critical of myself. And, uh, and even, even when I'm not, I think that there's just something to art and that whole value thing. I, th- I think that if there's a message that n- that needs to be said, if there's a story that needs to be told and should be told for the benefit of humanity, then then there's a lot of value in that. And I think that anytime someone goes out on a limb and does something or even makes a decision to even go down that path, I think that that there's a lot of there's a lot of things you got to fight through to really make that happen sometimes. And I think that's just what I was doing and what I have gotten better at doing and not being like, it doesn't cripple me anymore. Um, being, being so critical of, of myself and most artists are, man, you've got great questions. This is fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate Mm -hmm. that. Tell me about the South Austin Moonlighters. Yeah. Well, first of all, South Austin Moonlighters is a group of four Americana artists that are singer-songwriters that all play uh, kind of a different role in the band, but uh, we're all accompanists as well and pretty accomplished at, at their instruments. So every, every one of these guys is, uh, you know, can walk into any studio in town and everybody knows who they are. They're fully capable of laying down you know, killer tracks at any given point and playing right along with some of the best that anyone's ever heard of. So you you get this group of four guys that are willing to set aside like their personal goals and, and aspirations in their own career to help each other accomplish all these things together. And that's really what the South Austin Moonlighters is. So it's a unique group of, of guys. We, we downplay it a lot, but I'm the new guy. And so I'm walking in, you know, with my, my bifocals on and I see this for what it is. I mean, these, this is a truly unique opportunity and experience. They don't make bands like this anymore. How did you uh, meet them? How did you join the band? I knew Lonnie, the bass player, and the guy who does most of the business. So uh, usually when 
when uh, the Moonlighters are as a, as making a business decision or anything like that, it's Lonnie. Mm -hmm. So he's the one who picked up the phone and called me, but I happened to know him through some mutual friends and working with him on some other things. And so he started asking last year, Hey man, what are you doing? Is everything going all right? You know, I hear you're, you know, you got that, that new record out and everything. And, I, and we, so we started having conversations. He goes, you know, you should, you should join the South Austin Moonlighters. It'd be good for you. No, Lonnie, there's no, I can't do that, man. I'm right in the middle of this, you know, or whatever. So anyway, we kind of started reconnecting and uh, just sitting down and talking about it. And, and then we started getting to the point where, well, let's, let's go play some songs, you know? So we'd get together and, and jam and it really was going really well. So I started thinking about it and I was kind of coming to the end of what I could do uh, promotionally with the gin mill hymns, just because that's just, you know, you, you're, those things run in cycles. So that album that I had put out at the end of 2013, you know, by the end of 2014, with radio and otherwise, you've got about as much traction as you're ever going to get. You're not going to break any new markets and you're not going to uh, uh, be able to generate any more PR or publicity uh, off of a new release because it's just not new anymore. So time to shift gears and figure out what the next thing is. And, and this was the next thing. So I, I agreed to join the South Austin Moonlighters as long as we could put out an album within the first year. How long has it been? It's been a year. Okay. So we're right at the end of that. And we've been working hard to get that done. And we'll be done here in another month or so. But, uh, and that was, they were like, yeah, man, we need to do that anyway. That's fine. Whatever. I mean, back then it was just like, a, yeah, whatever. Let's just get going, you know. But really, that was, it, it was amazing within the first, I'd say the first show we did was fantastic. I mean, we had a blast and that was really cool. But was what was unique was what started to happen about two months, three months after that, when Phil Hurley started introducing these songs that hadn't been introduced into the Moonlighters, and uh, and he's the, the other guitar, yeah, player. other guitar player and singer. And then uh, Lonnie has this this one idea that hadn't been introduced yet, and Phil Bass would had been working with this one idea. So all all of a sudden, all of these ideas began to really take shape with the new uh, members of the South Austin Moonlighters. And all of a sudden the band started really, really sounding like this is the next thing. This is what this band sounds like now. And here we go. And uh, I was really excited. I mean, I still am, but the songs are so good. I mean, I, th I think that, that, uh, that every one of the guys in the group has uh, some really great songs on this record. And I'm excited about it. That's that's great to hear. I've uh, I've watched a handful of videos of the band. Uh, I haven't had a, the uh, the privilege of of seeing you live yet, um, and it just seems it just seems like it's a group of of as you described of skilled, talented musicians having a lot of fun. Yeah, just having a lot of fun on stage and, and high energy. So I, that certainly comes across even over a video. Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, we that's exactly the way the group started was that uh, everybody was a sideman in somebody else's project mm -hmm. and and that was all fine and good but they all really kind of were just friends and wanted to hang out and play mm -hmm. together doing their own thing or doing things the way they wanted to do instead of being told what to play all the time and all that kind of stuff so Lonnie ended up booking all these gigs and the guys show up and they go okay what do we play <laughs> well I know this one by <laughs> so and so let's do that yeah 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 it's a this that follow me here we go and that's how they started I think that 
for them, it's been, I, I say for them, I mean, for us now, it was a kind of a difficult road to recover from the cover band thing where they started because that's really all they were doing. They it kind of didn't dawn on them to actually invest a little time in it and then do something that was original until after they got the project off the ground. So they didn't, uh, they didn't really start going that way until probably six months, a year after they had really gotten going. But yeah, for the most part, it is a high energy, you know, uh, show the guys have a blast. We love playing together. I mean, I mean, where else nowadays can you find a group of four guys, you know, that can play that well on the same stage, um, not just as accompanist of a guy up front, but they're all trying to help each other shine. Like they're all taking turns. Like we go around the, like Phil Hurley will start next. It'll be Lonnie. Then it's me. Then it's Phil Bass. And then it's back to Phil Hurley. And then it's Lonnie. So we just keep going around and doing songs and we all trade off and we all trade off as front men and we all trade off as support men to help the person up front shine and do that thing that that, that they do the best. It's a different style, but it, uh, in a sense, uh, as I hear you describe that, I think of uh, I think of Chickenfoot. Yeah, I don't know if you've read any <laughs> interviews with the guys, but they they have this just smile on their face and this glow, and they just That's talk about cool. how much fun it is to do that. Well, and they sound really good. I don't know if they're singing about anything important, but they sound <laughs> really good. How often are you playing with uh, with uh, Moonlighters? When I joined, we we really didn't have that ironed out. They, I mean, they were doing a lot of dates, but they had just gotten to where they were breaking out into other areas in Texas. So there were, Lonnie had got them uh, breaking into, you know, Houston market, into San Antonio, and uh, a couple other, San Angelo, a couple other markets like that. And I think just within like the release of the album within that year, so six months prior, they had gotten to where they were doing that and traveling a little bit. So I didn't really know what to expect. I thought that, that I would uh, do, you know, one or two shows a month, three shows a month, maybe four shows a month with the Moonlighters. And then I would do my own thing for the rest of the time. But it turns out we actually, like the month of October, I think we did, man, I think we did between 15 and 20 dates in October. Ooh. And, yeah, so to try and keep all these other things afloat and do all that, it becomes really difficult, especially when you're traveling, you know, and you got four hours of drive time there and four hours, you know, to the next place or whatever. So that is kind of taken precedence. But it's it's interesting how a friend of mine told me one time, you know, why ride the wave you've been given to ride. Like, you know, stop, you don't have to go against the flow all the time, you know. Like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So I'm that's kind of where I'm at. I enjoy it. I I uh, I I see the uniqueness in the in the experience. And I'm proud to to be a part of it and proud to contribute. So I think it makes total sense to to be moving in that direction. And it seems like that's the wave that I've been given to ride, and so I'm gonna keep riding it. That's great. Um other than the than the moonlighters, um, and I think I heard you mention uh, that you're working on a new record, or at least writing some songs. Um, are those your two main projects right now? Yeah, yeah. They the uh, I've got I've got the moonlighters record that I have to finish uh, within this month sometime, 
and then I've got another project that I'm producing. Uh, Amy Hooper is a good friend of mine who's a singer-songwriter, and this will be her first album. And so it's been a long time coming, and we've been working on it for a while, but uh, that'll get done this month too. So uh, I guess that's that's pretty much it. I mean, as far as a, being a producer and working in the studio, I'll have another project uh, December, January that I'll – that I'll be committed to. But other than that, I think as the next year comes, I'm going to really limit how much time I spend producing other people, mainly focus on uh, traveling with the Moonlighters because the disc will be out by then, the new album. So focus on promotion with, with them and traveling. And then uh, that the next step in the game would be my third solo record. And that needs to happen. I'd love for it to happen sooner than later, but in all honesty, I uh, it it won't happen until next summer, probably end of summer, if uh, if if then, because I may have it done before then. But it just doesn't make any sense for for me to go against or get in the way of what the South Austin Moonlighters we as a as a team can accomplish within the first six months of next year. I sure don't want to you know, release a solo record in that time frame because right. it's not going to do me any good. I'm not going to get any more traction than we're already going to get with the Moonlighters. So, Do you have any final words of advice for anyone aspiring to make a career in music, given, um, given everything you've been through and the lessons you've learned? Well, first of all, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> so take it with a grain of salt. Everybody's different. Um, I have figured out a way to... Um, have a diverse portfolio in the music business. So I think that's what it takes, at least from my perspective, to make a living. So you, if, if you can mix, if you can work in the studio producing, uh, if you can play, you know, like crazy on an instrument or multiple instruments, uh, if you can write and you can front your own band, uh, you can, you know, you've got a list of about four different things at any given point that can, that can generate an income for you. Then you're, you're beginning to create longevity for your, for yourself. I mean, that, that's my advice. I think that the, the more, the more knowledge and the better you can be at whatever it is that you're, that you're doing, the, the higher up the food chain, you know, so to speak, you can be, but there's just going to be a limit to how much work there is available in any one of those areas. And so I think that if you can do a little bit of, of a number of things, then there's always going to be enough work at any given point in any one of those areas for you to survive and, and, and make a living. And I think, I think that also helps as much as it hurts to, to differentiate your time because you're not committed, you know, solely to any one thing, I think that it helps because it, what it does for me is it keeps me from making these decisions that, that cripple me. So if I get too far down any one path, um, you know, there are all kinds of decisions that I can make, uh, like that would, that would sacrifice my family to, to get wherever this next step is that I got to get or whatever it is. I don't think that I can ever get too far down any one of those paths to make a dumb decision. I think that, that it, that I, that I've managed to keep shifting gears enough to maintain my perspective on each one of those pieces 
and kind of go, you know, I don't ever, I don't ever end up in the parking lot squealing my tires, flipping everybody off. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't get so pissed at whatever it is that I just can't do it anymore. And that's what you don't ever need to do. You you, you can't get to that point because it's not productive for anybody. So yeah, I guess being diverse and, and, uh, and not making those, those earth shattering types of decisions like I just described. <laughs> Don't do it. Chris, uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for, for being on this episode. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris as much as I did. Until next time.